I'd love for you to turn with me this morning uh, to Matthew chapter 2 uh, as we begin our second week of this Christmas series uh, called People of the X. Uh, I began the series la- uh, last week because I think sometimes Christians can get ourselves easily offended. I think especially at Christmas time, there are Christians, and of course I mean out there, none of us ever in here would do anything like this, that uh, can make it our mission almost to find something to be upset about. Uh, whether it be us objecting to the phrase happy holidays or season's greetings, which I always took to encompass Thanksgiving and Christmas and the new year, so it never really got under my skin, but uh, other people are offended by such greetings because they're taking cry, uh, Christmas out of it. For some, they get offended that Christmas has become too commercialized. It's all about lights and presents and Santa and Black Friday turning into Black Thursday. For others, you're not festive enough. Where's your lights? Where's your Santa? Where's all your decorations? I I just kind of imagine that every year, uh, you know, around your birthday, every one of your friends starts to get together and fight with everyone else. You know, it's, uh, to paraphrase one of my favorite shows, The Office, Michael Scott saying, happy birthday, Jesus. Sorry, your party's so lame. You know, I just feel like sometimes we can miss out because of our offense. As we talked about last week, I think uh, one of the things Christians often get most upset about, most offended over, uh, is that phrase, Merry Xmas. And, you know, think this time they've gone too far. You know, imagine getting your birthday cake and they've crossed your name out on it. But uh, as we looked at last week, uh, Christ in Greek, the original language in the New Testament, actually is Christos, and it starts with an X. And so we we might think as a uh, godless uh, ploy by atheists to take out Christ from Christmas is really an ancient Christian tradition to denote Christ with simply an X. And it's much like the same way Kelsey and I, when writing each other's notes, will put just B or K sometimes as a shorthand. And Xmas is really no different. And so rather than getting offended or offending people over silly semantic details, I wanted to be like Jesus this Christmas and offend people for the right reasons today. Uh, and so our series, People of the X, is designed to expose and explode some of the misconceptions that we have about Christmas that might even be offensive to us. Each week, we'll kind of break down and look at one area, one avenue of Jesus' life and ministry that was offensive to those around him in conjunction with part of the Christmas story. I mentioned this last week, but I think it bears repeating that Jesus, Jesus often said and did things that offended the people around him. And the people that were most often offended by Jesus were religious people, most often people like you and I. And so last week, we looked at how Jesus often offended those around him by socializing with unacceptable people. But this morning, I think it really hits the core of our relationship with Jesus as we look at how we're offended and the ways that he often threatens our ways of life. Even a cursory reading of the New Testament will show you that Jesus has no interest in allowing us to remain unchanged upon encountering him. And I think Jesus requires this response from us, requires a response from us, because his qualifications for discipleship are pretty extreme. You've probably heard people say before, well, I, you know, I don't really believe that Jesus was God, but I do think that he was a, a good moral teacher. And that sounds nice. It sounds respectful and calm. But when we really familiarize ourselves with the things that Jesus did and the things that he taught, really a good moral teacher is about as watered down as it gets. While Jesus was good and he was moral and he was a teacher, he was also extreme in his call to discipleship. And I think that can make us uncomfortable. I remember my very first ministry, full-time ministry, uh, right out of college, uh, I went to a church in Kansas, and the first series I wanted to preach there was out of the book of Ephesians. 
Uh, primarily because when we see the church in Ephesus in the book of Acts, when Paul tells them about Jesus, when they accept the gospel, he tells us, Luke tells us in writing the book of Acts, that they brought all of their magic scrolls out into the street and burned them, and they were worth a fortune. But in their devotion to Jesus, they were willing to put their old way of life behind them in such a way that it was irretrievable to pursue Jesus at all costs. And I thought, what a great picture of who we should be as the church. And so I entitled that series, Radical Church. And I had somebody come to me and said, I don't like that word radical. It's too confrontational. And I wanted to say, welcome to Jesus. You know, that's, this is who he is. I mean, the guy who says, I am the way and the truth and the life, that seems pretty radical. It seems pretty extreme. And I think in many ways, it was his extreme nature that led a lot of people to disagree with Jesus, and some even to despise him. Now, I know most of us in this room would not fall into those categories. Most of you probably don't disagree with Jesus, and you certainly don't despise him. But maybe our response is to simply divide him, to kind of come up with two Jesuses. Maybe we don't even recognize that we do it. We have one who says good things and nice things, things that could fit uh, on wall art or a nice calendar, a small piece of Christian art somewhere. And there's the other Jesus who really couldn't have meant all those things that he said. Wall art Jesus says things like, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. what, What could be better? Love God, love people. Very simple. John 10.10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And maybe your translation says, have it more abundantly. We like that one. Matthew 19.14, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. I can just see that cross stitched on a pillow somewhere. And none of those verses are bad. I love that Jesus says those things. We like that Jesus because he's agreeable. He's safe. He doesn't mess with the way we like to live our lives. In fact, he fits rather nicely into them. But then Jesus, every so often, and maybe more often than not, does what the older generation likes to call, he gets to meddling. He's just uh, to shaking things up, stirring things up. My favorite example is the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus kind of turns everything that we think that we know about who God is and what his kingdom is like, and he turns it on its head. He begins with this list of blessings called the Beatitudes, and he sums them up in the end with blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And I think, Jesus, I don't think you know what blessing is because none of those things sound like blessings. And then Jesus continues by playing almost like a game show, like you have heard but wrong. You know, that he says, you know, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You read that and think, well, Jesus, that's, that doesn't seem fair. I mean, I'm being angry with them, certainly not as, as far as killing them. I didn't act on it. I didn't really hurt anyone. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. They go, come on, Jesus. I mean, that sounds impossible. It's not like I'm going to act on anything. But what do you expect me to do? Gouge out my eyes? He says, you have heard that it was said eye for eye and tooth for tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Well, Jesus, that just sounds like a good way to get taken advantage of. And Jesus continues on and on and through this list, through this sermon as he finishes, kind of this sermon on upside down living in the kingdom of God. 
Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And I think therein lies one of the greatest areas of offense that so often many took against Jesus, this area of authority. Because Jesus, by his very nature, if what he says about himself is true, must be polarizing. When someone else is Lord, when someone else is king, that means that you can't be. I've said it before, and I don't think it's original to me, that Jesus sits on a throne and not a love seat. And so when Jesus says all of these hard sayings, these extreme sayings, he's not just proposing a good way to live. He's showing us the only way to truly live. Because Jesus is king, we cannot be. And in being king, Jesus threatens our way of life. Now to take it back to the Christmas story, for just a moment, we see Jesus was not just polarizing as an adult, but from the very moment that Jesus entered into the world, he was polarizing. There were those who sought him with everything that they had and everything that they were, and there were those who fought him with everything they had and everything they were. And we see both of these responses in the Christmas story that Matthew tells in his gospel, starting in chapter 2. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who was born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Messiah was to be born. And Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may too go and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Maybe this story is a familiar one to you. You probably know well the story of the positive response to Jesus' birth. We have our, our wise men, or our magi, as they're called here, in our nativity scenes and in our retellings of the Christmas story. But I think we often shortchange just what these magi did to come to Jesus. The chief priests, who would presumably have been awaiting this day for centuries and knew where Jesus would be found, wouldn't even bother to be walk a stone's throw from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. All these pagan astrologers came as far as 900 miles. And if anybody had a reason to show up without present in hand, I mean, their journey enough was probably a present itself. These guys brought costly gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so I admire the extreme nature of these magi. I mean, not only in their great travel and great gifts of value, but also the great measures they took to avoid returning to Herod. Any main way back home for them would have meant bringing their entire entourage through or close to Jerusalem. And so the fact that they avoid detection shows they made their lengthy trip even longer. But there's also another extreme response to this story, from the negative side of Herod the Great. 
Verse 13 says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so it was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. We see Herod, and Herod was a pretty interesting guy. And by interesting, I, of course, mean diabolically evil. This man is crazy. I read in a commentary this week, most kings reacted with hostility to potential usurpers and to astrological predictions of their demise. And I thought, well, I would think so. You know, most kings don't like it when other kings try to take their thrones and people predict their death. I mean, it's just another one of those nuggets that you get from going into the deep research behind the Bible. But really, we, don't under, we couldn't be truer of Herod. I mean, to Herod, everyone seemed like a rival for his throne. Just a few years prior to Jesus' birth, Herod had two of his own sons put to death. And from his deathbed in a few years from here, he would execute a third. And just in case anyone was loyal to those sons, why not have 300 of their attendants executed also? There's an expression that circulated around the time that it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than his sons. There was a high priest that had a, particular, a peculiar drowning accident, though he was just in a few feet of water. A favorite wife of his that ended up strangled. There were some court officials and Pharisees who, I guess, looked at him a little funny because he had them killed too. And so when I read in verse 3, it's understandable that it says, when King Herod heard about the birth of the king of the Jews, he was disturbed. That was kind of his M.O. But it did intrigue me that the rest of the verse says, and all Jerusalem with him. This word disturbed is troubled, it's stirred up, it's a word used in other places of a raging sea. And what we see is the good news of a new king wasn't good news for everyone. Rival kings for their political circumstances were never a good thing, and aside from Rome stepping in to quash it, even more worrisome would have been Herod's reaction. It would kind of be for them, the reason they were troubled and disturbed is the same reason we don't often bring up politics around our grandparents at Thanksgiving. You know, you won't say, hey, Grandma, what do you think about the most recent election? And just kind of drop that bomb and run away. We don't do that. And so to cover all of his bases, Herod has put to death every boy under the age of two in the surrounding area. I mean, needless to say, Herod has some control issues. But it also occurs to me that though we don't express it by slaughtering defenseless toddlers in our communities, we can also have some pretty big control issues when it comes to Jesus. Have you ever noticed that it seems like Christmas time, everyone is a Christian? I mean, not really, but they think they are. And pop artists who fill their songs with lewd themes and language all the rest of the year sing songs like, Mary, did you know? And oh, come all ye faithful in the season of Christmas. Everyone's fine with a Jesus in a manger. And most are perfectly content to keep him there. Because Jesus is easy to handle in the stable. A picturesque scene with hay bales and cattle lowing and donkey braying and sheep lying calmly at young Mary's feet as this faint glow circles her and shines upon her infant in her arms. I mean, we think about the baby Jesus, and that's quite palatable to us. But when we begin to talk about that baby all grown up, Suddenly, our control issues with Jesus begin to emerge. 
Jesus, I'll come light a candle on Christmas Eve, but you stay away from the other 364 days. Well, 363, I'll give you Easter too. Yeah, I'll sing away in a manger and set up a nativity, but Jesus, keep away from my wallet and keep your nose out of my sex life and mind your business, when I, how I spend my time. Jesus offends many today for the same reason he has offended nearly every person in every age since that day he was born. Because he threatens our way of life. One car can't have two drivers. One throne can't have two kings. One heart can't have two occupants. Jesus threatens our way of life. Because if he is who he claims to be, he has to threaten our way of life. Our way of life says, I am captain of this ship. I am king of this castle. I am CEO of the business of my life. And then Jesus comes along and tells us something very, very important and potentially very offensive. He says, you didn't build the ship. You don't own the castle, and you have no business running the business of your life. You see, the point of this morning, and what I don't want you to miss is this. Jesus threatens our way of life so that we can live life the way it was meant to be lived. Yeah, I think that the story of humanity is the story of the struggle of how we think that we should run our lives and how we think we can do it better than God can. But when I look at the creator versus the created, I think a truth emerges. I mean, who knew more about the light bulb than Thomas Edison? Who knew more about the Model T than Ford? Who knows more about what my sons need than his mother and I do? Doesn't it stand to reason that the creator knows the most about his creation? Doesn't it stand to reason that the one who created us would be the one who could best tell us how to live that life? Colossians 1.16 says, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And so I think if Jesus threatens our way of life, then it's probably our lives and not Jesus that needs reevaluated. So what I want to invite you to this morning is simply a life and Jesus, to invite you and extend you the invitation to follow him and obey him and commit to him and love him. Because I'm venturing to guess, as most of us have, if you tried to live life on your own terms for very long at all, you realize we're not very good at that. And maybe that's where you're at this morning. You've tried doing things your own way, and you've made a real mess of things. You're in good company. If you want to make that decision to follow Jesus and give him control as king and lord of your life, we want to encourage you to do that this morning. During this next song, I'll be up front. I'd love to pray with you and talk with you about what that looks like. Jesus values your life so much that he gave up his own to save it. And if your life is important enough that God would give up his to save you, maybe he knows a thing or two about how to best live the life he's given you. Is that extreme? Maybe. Is it worth it? Absolutely. I think more than we will ever realize. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. And Christmas is such a special season where we celebrate our entrance into our world. 
the birth of Jesus in the midst of these divine and miraculous circumstances where you orchestrated every single piece that he would come in the fullness of time perfectly in tune with what we needed even when we didn't know we needed it. God, as we celebrate your provision and your, your hand at work in this season, I pray that we wouldn't leave Jesus in the manger. I pray that as we look at what he came to do, and the things that he said, and the claims that he made, we would recognize that we have a king, and we have a Lord, who's not content to let us just continue to live the way we've always lived. That Jesus, you call us to something greater than we could possibly imagine. Many look at that and call it extreme, unreasonable, impossible. But we know, Jesus, that you call us to something, not to oppress us or to make us put hardship upon our lives, but to liberate us and the freedom of living life the way you've created to be lived. And so, Jesus, I pray that this season that we would, yes, celebrate you coming into our world, but we would not forget why you came and what you came to instill in us, a desire to follow you as Lord and King of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.